I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Our show today is another in our series on the Russian Revolution of 1917. This time, Leon Trotsky, or The Revolution Betrayed. Our music throughout is by the 80s English socialist skinhead soul punk group, The Redskins. This is Lev Bronstein. In 1917, Leon Trotsky, born Lev Bronstein, burst upon the international stage as the brain behind the Russian Revolution. He presided over the complete transformation of his country, not merely a change of government, but a total restructuring of society on every level. But two Trotskys arise in the ideological aftermath. Was he the great hero slaying the dragon of capitalism, or was he the ruthless and satanic purveyor of bloody rebellion? A detached and arrogant theorist gone mad with power. But Trotsky, who would become the political arch-rival of Joseph Stalin, was a latecomer to Bolshevism and revolution. Our guest today is Paul LeBlanc. He's a professor of history at La Roche College in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and author of a short biography of Leon Trotsky from Reaction Books, as well as Lenin and the Revolutionary Party from Haymarket Books. And his latest is on the Russian Revolution, titled October Song, Bolshevik Triumph, Communist Tragedy, 1917 to 1924, also from Haymarket. The dream of socialism as an organizing principle has been deemed an inevitable failure and logically undemocratic because what started in 1917 did, as a fact, devolve into one of history's worst dictatorships under Stalin. But that history has been used to conclude that socialism inherently leads to that tyranny, holds it within its core. That narrative has been enthusiastically and uninterruptedly promoted in the West by capitalist powers ever since. Of course, socialism, the idea, was around before the Russian Revolution of 1917, and certainly before Stalin stormed the stage. And the ideals behind socialism, the economic system, trace back to philosophies, religions, and long-held, long-accepted human ideals. So how did 1917 become the start of a very successful century of propaganda against socialism? Lenin's impetus for revolution in Russia was to light a fuse for worldwide revolution, to turn the imperial First World War into civil war in each country. Workers shouldn't shoot at each other. They should unite and fight against the rulers who are telling them to shoot each other. And it was the socialism of Germany that led him to believe this was possible. But the German Social Democrats voted for war credit, giving credence to a blend of patriotic imperialism killing the chance for a world conflagration under socialist upheaval and starving the nascent socialism of Soviets in its crib. Stranded, permanent revolution turned into socialism in one country, which in turn became Stalin's revolution from above, communism by merciless, murderous diktat. From within this crucible, the revolutionary theorist, ruthless Red Army commander and plausible dictator-in-waiting, leader of the left opposition against the terrorism of Stalin's bureaucratic abstractions, Leon Trotsky was cast, the romantic hero in exile, and the apostate enemy of Lenin's revolution. And now, Leon Trotsky, the revolution betrayed, on Interchange, on WFHB. I guess we'll just start right off with um, what 1917 means to you, what it is in, I guess, our imaginary in the West, uh, does it have a truth to offer? It's a broad question. What is 1917? What is the Russian Revolution? How do we uh, think of it in a, I guess, a layperson's kind of way? You know, what, what kind of uh, position does it hold in our, our Western imagination? 
Okay, well, that's a very broad question. <laughs> it is. Let's start there and, and see if we can warm up that way. Okay, great. Uh, well, for me, the Russian Revolution is uh, something that is uh, fascinating and amazing and inspiring, uh, in part because uh, it involved uh, ordinary people, uh, masses of uh, workers and peasants, uh, who were uh, pushing against very oppressive conditions and uh, ultimately attempting to create a new and better world in which uh, they would have control over their lives, over their uh, government and political situation, over their economy. Uh, and the word that uh, some of these uh, revolutionaries gave to that conception was socialism. Uh, and um, I think in the uh, West, uh, socialism uh, is uh, a, a dirty word for many people, uh, in, uh, in particular those who own the big businesses that control our economy. We live in a capitalist economy or a market economy. And so uh, socialism has been portrayed and the Russian Revolution has been portrayed uh, very, very negatively. Uh, but reality is always more complicated than that. And one of the realities in Russia was that a revolution that started out as something very idealistic and super democratic uh, became thwarted and became uh, undemocratic and uh, resulted in one of the worst dictatorships in human history under Joseph Stalin. So anyone who wants to understand the Russian Revolution has to try to come to grips with that. Those who are against socialism, against economic democracy, and want to maintain their own control over the economy, uh, point to that reality of the uh, development of a dictatorship in Russia, in the Soviet Union, as uh, proof that socialism won't work. And in many cases, they uh, argue that uh, the revolutionaries who made the revolution simply wanted to create a tyranny. Um, and so uh, historians have been debating uh, that question as well. Mm. Well, it is, as you say, complex, and a lot of it uh, maybe has to do with how we lump all of these terms almost into the Russian Revolution. Obviously, socialism is a term that exists prior to 1917. It's a, it's an ideal. It's a, an organizing principle. Um, there, there are places to start before Russia when it comes to socialism, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, uh, there are elements of the socialist uh, idea and ideal that go back even before the development of socialism itself. Uh, for example, if we take the golden rule, there are two ways to understand the golden rule. One is he who has the gold makes the rules. And that <laughs> has been uh, the story of history for uh, thousands of years. But there are some, uh, you can find it in Confucius, you can find it in Jesus, you can find it uh, in Muhammad, you can find it in all of the world's uh, great religions, uh, a notion of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, uh, that we're all in this life together, that we should uh, uh, you know, participate together in making sure that uh, all of us have a, a decent life. And that is central to the socialist idea. Um, 
over the years, there are uh, scholars, philosophers, economists, sociologists, people like Karl Marx, for example, who attempted to develop an understanding of history and uh, human society from a socialist uh, point of view. And Marx's ideas became very uh, influential in the labor movement, in the working class movement throughout Europe and the world in the late 19th century. And it was uh, uh, under that kind of influence that uh, a number of the revolutionaries in Russia made their revolution. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest is Paul LeBlanc, historian of labor movements and socialism, whose latest book is October Song, Bolshevik Triumph, Communist Tragedy, 1917 to 1924. It's one of those, uh, again, one of those ways in which we kind of forget the history that comes before, right? It, it kind of uh, explodes out of out of our uh, textbooks as this period uh, that almost exists um, sui generis, right? Uh, at the same time, as you say, this, this, these concepts have been had been percolating and been talked about. Obviously, as you say, going back into into thousands of years ago with religious teachers as well as as teachers of organizing society. Um, you know, it's not. It's not a new thing, socialism. The idea, the ideas that Marx brings about, perhaps, are uh, creates a, a new turn in, in analysis, I guess, in trying to understand the way the world is actually working, uh, and and working against uh, that, I suppose. But the socialism of England, you know, is 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 sort of burgeoning at the time as well. Um, I was just thinking the other day of William Morris. You know, he comes around the same time as well, but earlier a little bit. Um, and I, we did a show on Paul Robeson where Robeson said, you know, I learned my socialism in England, you know, in, in, from George Bernard Shaw. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, part of the idea here is to say, what is it we're getting that's new here? You know, what is it we're getting that, that has created a kind of uh, revulsion in, you know, what is... I guess a propagandized capitalist culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that's partly where where we move into this idea of how 1917 makes meaning for socialism against capitalism. I guess in the form of communism rather than socialism, even though socialism is a dirty word as well. <laughs> but uh, you know how 1917 and what is to come, what is to follow, creates that dichotomy, this black and white for these imperial notions. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, uh, you know, it has the complexity, the reality that we're looking at has the complexity that you were uh, talking about, and even more so. I mean, if you just look at the terms, socialism, communism, what what's the difference between uh, uh, the meaning of the terms? Marx and, uh, and his uh, friend Friedrich Engels saw them as basically synonyms. Um, but uh, there was a certain uh, point in the early 20th century with the explosion of World War I where some socialists uh, betrayed their principles and ended up supporting the war effort of their particular country. And there were other socialists who argued that uh, uh, workers of all countries should unite against capitalism but also against uh, uh, things like uh, the First World War. Mm -hmm. And in Russia some of those revolutionary socialists were so 
uh, angry with their uh, socialist comrades who were supporting the war that they said, we're going to call ourselves communists, not socialists anymore. Mm. Originally, communism uh, had that connotation of a revolutionary socialist. But over time, with the development of the dictatorship under Stalin, communism took on yet a different connotation for us today. So, uh, you know, some of these words are... Uh, uh, are, are very complicated, and we have to stop and try to define what we mean by the word, what we understand by the word. Right. It's the simplicity that gets us into trouble, or the simple uh, like ideological perspectives that are thrust onto the particular terms. Uh, you know, communism becomes Stalinism, um, and the the intricacies or the realities of history behind it fades away. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You mentioned something there, too, that I think we forget about, World War I. So we, it's an odd thing to say, but as we look at 1917, as we look at the Russian Revolution, uh, we forget about war sometimes and war as a particular catalyst or war as the fertile ground for uh, the worldwide revolution. Uh, mm -hmm. As you mentioned there, also the the idea that, uh, you know, I, I think it's Lenin who says, you know, we want to turn these imperial wars into civil wars across the globe, right, across the European um, theater. How, what does he mean by that? What, what's, the, what's the point of, of, of sort of turning imperial wars into civil wars? Well, one thing is that as a Marxist, uh, Lenin believed uh, that uh, the great majority of laboring people in every country uh, were in struggle and had to be in struggle for their own survival against the power of the uh, upper classes that owned and controlled the economy. Mm -hmm. So he saw this as something that was constant, uh, this uh, uh, class struggle between the rich and the poor, the capitalists and uh, the laboring majority. Um, and uh, at the same time, um, he believed that uh, capitalism generated... Uh, imperialism, colonialism, militarism, which he saw as the cause of World War One, And he believed that in all of the countries that uh, you had capitalism, workers needed to not only fight against the war, but fight against the causes of the war, which meant uh, fighting against uh, the capitalist classes in their own countries. So uh, in, that's what he means by civil war. That is the struggle of uh, the laboring majority against the privileged minorities. Hmm. And uh, so he argued uh, we've got to turn this imperialist war, which is horrific, which is killing millions and millions of people. We've got to, uh, workers need to not shoot at each other across the battlefield, but instead uh, overthrow the uh, ruling classes in, in their own countries, turn the imperialist war into a civil war and into a socialist revolution. And I think at some point he's, I mean, he's encouraging fraternization, right? Like that's part of the, yeah. Absolutely. Right. Uh, and uh, there were many people, not, not simply uh, uh, Lenin's Bolshevik faction in the uh, Russian revolutionary movement, but others too, who reached out to their brothers, you know, from other countries in other uniforms uh, across the uh, uh, the battlefield to fraternize and to uh, embrace each other rather than killing each other. Um, and there were many cases of this uh, during the war, and this is something absolutely that Lenin and his comrades encouraged. It's time for a break. This is Kick Over the Statues from the Redskins, whose one album, Neither Washington Nor Moscow, released in 1986, 
is a powerful document from the fight against the right-wing forces that dominated the British political landscape at that time. Stay with us for more on The Revolution Betrayed with historian and author Paula Blanc when Interchange returns on WFHB. Storm on Interchange, our show is Leon Trotsky, or The Revolution Betrayed. In this segment, guest Paul LeBlanc wrestles with the fact that the triumph of the Socialist Revolution in 1917 devolved rather quickly into the tragedy of dictatorship, something Leon Trotsky also wrestled with in exile, until his assassination on August 21, 1940, by the NKVD, Stalin's secret police, in Coyoacan, a borough of Mexico City. Your book, October Song, uh, like uh, many others in this period, uh, focuses on on this particular period of revolution. Revolution is percolating at the time. Obviously, there's a 1905 revolution as well. Um, clearly, Russia is a, a kind of powder keg in this sense from the um, uh, freeing of the serfs in the 1860s forward to assassinations of czars and, and the various terror movements that are attempting to unseat power as well. So a lot's happening, and it, it sort of culminates in, in 1917. And, and is your book primarily about 1917 or about October in particular? Well, it goes beyond that. The, the uh, uh, subtitle is Bolshevik Triumph, Communist Tragedy, mm. 1917 to 1924. So what I'm looking at, the, the uh, revolutionary uh, uh, faction in the uh, Russian socialist movement, they were known as the Bolsheviks, uh, led by Lenin and others. And uh, as I said before, they turned uh, their, uh, the name of their own party from socialist to communist, and uh, tragically, uh, this uh, uh, effort that they were making to establish a super democratic uh, country with a democratic government and a democratic economy uh, turned into uh, a, a dictatorship. The ideals and the ideas that they were fighting for, and I, I look at uh, that in the book, what they were fighting for, what they were fighting against, but then I also look at 
what happened? What, why did it, what, what went wrong? It seems to me that uh, any serious historian needs to wrestle with that. And also those of us who are sympathetic to the socialist idea need to wrestle with that. What happened in this situation where such an inspiring revolution turned into, in some ways, its opposite? Mm. Now, you mentioned that, um, you know, not only does the turn to Stalinism and, and the turn to dictatorship create a kind of reactionary historical response as well, um, where multiple societies or cultural influences on how we understand history compete over this particular um, period of time. How do we parse the academic, scholarly, you know, whoever's going to present 1917 to us, uh, who's going to present Lenin to us, who's going to present Trotsky to us? You know, these are the issues that that seem to me to be, again, coming to the fore, even if you imagine that 1917 kind of lost its sway for a while. Um, How is it that we as readers, lay people, you know, just the general people who are trying to figure out what we can do with this, I guess, where do we go to? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, uh, if we look at the way that the revolution has been dealt with over the past hundred years by analysts, commentators, journalists, historians, uh, social scientists, we find a, a tremendous variety of, of sources and points of view and, and, and so on, so that uh, it can be uh, extremely confusing. It seems to me at the same time that um, there are objective Uh, people who are attempting to be objective. Uh, All of us have a point of view, but it's important to understand what the reality is uh, at the same time and what happened in history. And there are some journalists, some commentators, some historians who attempt to do that in a serious-minded way, uh, as opposed to just setting up some kind of good guys, bad guys scenario in order to uh, promote their particular point of view. You can find that all over uh, the political spectrum, but there are some uh, more serious people who attempt to wrestle with what happened, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, who uh, factor in the points of view of many of the participants in uh, a balanced way. I try to do that in my book, October Song, but there are others who do the same thing. I want to use uh, one of the first examples of uh, an account of the Russian Revolution by an American journalist, a young radical named John Reed, who wrote a classic called 10 Days That Shook the World. It was an eyewitness uh, report on the Russian Revolution. Uh, The other book is Leon Trotsky's uh, Great History of the Russian Revolution. So I would urge readers to look at various points of view and, uh, you know, try to make sense of things themselves, but veer away from a good guy's, bad guy's uh, uh, account of what happened. Reality is always more complicated than that. Yeah, well, th- that's good. And that's a good segue into Trotsky, right? Uh, so Trotsky himself writes the, I guess, the historical document of the time, or it's an after response. Uh, you know, he's writing it, I believe, while he's in... Norway? Is that right? Um, well, he was working on it for a while. So uh, right. I think he was working on it in Turkey, where he was in oh, exile. Turkey, right, right, right. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he ended up in uh, France and Norway, uh, and then ultimately Mexico, where he died. But uh, Trotsky is a very interesting figure. He was a, uh, you know, people uh, who uh, love his ideas and people who despise his ideas generally agree he was a great writer, one of the great writers, uh, and a great orator, 
brilliant, brilliant mind. And he was one of the leaders of the Russian Revolution. And he organized, uh, after the revolution, helped to organize and, and lead the Red Army in the battles of the Civil War, um, you know, that consolidated the, uh, the communist regime. Mm-hmm. Then he uh, opposed, um, uh, along with Lenin, uh, a, a tendency towards uh, bureaucratic authoritarianism that was developing more and more in the Soviet Republic. Lenin died, but Trotsky continued his battle against uh, the Stalin dictatorship and was thrown out of the country and eventually murdered by a, a, an agent of Stalin. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a very interesting figure. He never uh, abandoned his ideals and ideas, um, but it's interesting to uh, see what he has to say about the revolution and about what happened after the revolution. He was an important source. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest is Paul LeBlanc, historian of labor movements and socialism, whose latest book is October Song, Bolshevik Triumph. Communist Tragedy, 1917 to 1924. Yeah, so talk briefly um, about, I guess, talk a little bit, if you can, first about the literary quality of of that text, the history of the Russian Revolution. It's uh, widely praised, as you say, as uh, as being one of the maybe the great a great piece of literature, as much as uh, something that you look to for history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Trotsky did what any serious historian has to do, which is uh, comb through various sources and various sources that come from different points of view. And uh, so it's a rich uh, history simply from that standpoint. It's also enriched because he participated in the events. He knew the individuals. He knew the people that uh, uh, you know were involved in uh, furthering the revolution and opposing the revolution. So he's able to bring those kinds of insights into the book. But then also he has a certain view of history and of revolution that uh, encompasses and embraces the masses of ordinary people whose lives and activities make up the history. Uh, he, at one point uh, early in his book, he says that a revolution is when the masses of ordinary people intervene and interfere with what's happening in history and, and uh, a struggle to make their own history. And he captures that uh, quality of uh, the Russian Revolution that uh, uh, some historians miss, hmm. uh, but it's very much, it's central to his account. Now, I understand from several writers that you would even call it a manual of revolution. Well, uh, yeah, the, in a way it is. That is, he's he wrote it not simply to uh, take a stroll down memory lane, but because he believed it was relevant uh, to uh, uh, current and future struggles in the 1930s and beyond. And that if you understand what are the causes of revolution, what is the need of revolution, how are revolutions made, how is this particular revolution made, all the different uh, elements uh, from uh, the oppression of masses of people and and their uh, elemental fighting back against that oppression, and then uh, uh, the role played by uh, groups of workers and peasants and intellectuals who size up the situation and say, okay, here's what's wrong and here's what we want to 
achieve and how do we get from one to the other. Looking at those kinds of things in the Russian Revolution can be helpful uh, for people in their struggles you know, after the revolution, that particular revolution in the 1930s and beyond. So he was writing it in part to account for what happened, but also, as you said, as a, a, a source for people who uh, believe in the need for making a revolution in their own time, in their own context. It's time for another break. This is Bring It Down, another song from the Redskins, whose leader, Chris Dean, was a member of the Socialist Workers' Party. Stay with us for more on Leon Trotsky and the 1917 Russian Revolution when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show, part of a series prompted by the centenary of the 1917 Russian Revolution, continues with guest historian and author Paul LeBlanc, sharing some biographical detail about the Menshevik-turned-Bolshevik Leon Trotsky. We'll also hear how this man with no military experience became a widely revered and feared military strategist as commander of the Red Army during the counter-revolutionary civil war that followed the Bolsheviks' seizure of power 
from the provisional government. Can you give us, uh, Paul, a little history of uh, Trotsky? Who was he? Where did he? Where did he begin from? And how did he get to revolution? I wrote about this in a, a, a very short biography of Trotsky, mm-hmm. and there are wonderful biographies of Trotsky. And at the same time, it is contested terrain. So there are some people who've written about his life who despise him and I think distort his life and there are others who disagree with him but don't distort it and then there are others like myself who are very sympathetic to him and trying to get across the story. But the story itself uh, starts in the Ukraine where he was born. Uh, He was uh, Jewish. Uh, His father was not a, a very religious Jew and actually was a successful commercial farmer. But Trotsky, as he was growing up, came into contact with uh, and was very close to workers and and peasants, you know, in that area, Uh, was horrified at the the oppression that they were suffering. At the same time, uh, he was encouraged by various relatives to read and uh, engage with uh, uh, Russian literature and other literature and culture and so on. Uh, And then as a young student radical, uh, he came into contact with socialist ideas and with Marxism and then worked with his fellow students to connect with uh, working class struggles and became part of the early socialist movement in Russia in the uh, early 20th century. And then he was involved in uh, various efforts to build up the socialist movement, what was then called the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. He was close for a brief time with Lenin, uh, as, and Lenin was one of the uh, most uh, sophisticated and insightful of the organizers. And then he had a falling out with Lenin. There was a big split in the Russian movement, uh, the Russian socialist movement, between more moderate Mensheviks and uh, more strident Bolsheviks. And Lenin was the leader of the Bolsheviks. And for a number of years, Trotsky was in disagreement with Lenin. Um, and at the same time, they were on the same side of the struggle. Uh, against capitalism. And in 1905, there was a huge uh, upsurge of workers and peasants uh, in Russia. Uh, And uh, Trotsky became uh, very active in that. Uh, Workers in uh, Petrograd, where St. Petersburg, uh, where he was at the time, uh, organized uh, councils, democratic councils to coordinate their efforts. Uh, The word for council is Soviet. Mm -hmm. So he became the leader of the Petrograd Soviet or the St. Petersburg Soviet uh, in 1905. And then was imprisoned when the revolution uh, was defeated, and then escaped. (laughs) And uh, at the same time, he was attempting to analyze what's different about Russia. Uh, How is Russia different from Western Europe? How does Marxist theory apply to this particular uh, uh, situation in Russia? How can that situation in Russia help to enrich Marxist theory? And so he developed... Uh, various theoretical perspectives. One of the most famous was uh, the theory of permanent revolution, which said we the democratic revolution to overthrow the czar has got to keep going and spill over into a socialist revolution that will take place not only in Russia, but inspire revolutions in other uh, more industrially advanced capitalist countries. And the, in this way, socialism can be brought about. So he had this kind of perspective 
like Lenin, uh, and he and Lenin disagreed on many things, but like Lenin, he was uh, a fierce opponent of World War One. And then when the Bolsheviks uh, put forward a uh, a revolutionary perspective that he agreed with in 1917, he joined the Bolsheviks and became uh, a leader, along with Lenin, uh, probably uh, one of the uh, internationally most recognized leaders and uh, recognized also in Russia of the Russian Revolution. And then he played the role in the post-revolution uh, period during the Civil War, helping to build the Red Army. And then after that, he was an opponent of uh, the development of the bureaucratic dictatorship under Joseph Stalin. Uh, so that's basically his life. Uh, you know, he remained true to that. He uh, added important uh, insights into uh, uh, the developments in his time. For example, he uh, very uh, shrewdly analyzed the rise of fascism and Nazism in Germany. He argued that uh, socialists and, and uh, moderate socialists and revolutionary communists should join together to oppose Hitler. And he warned if they didn't do that, then uh, Nazism would triumph in Germany and bring a second world war, which is what happened uh, despite his warnings. Uh, so he continued to play a, a, a very important role uh, in his time up until 1940 when, uh, when he was uh, assassinated. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest is Paul LeBlanc, historian of labor movements and socialism, whose latest book is October Song, Bolshevik Triumph, Communist Tragedy, 1917-1924. So you mentioned the Red Army in there, and um, maybe let's get a little context for that. Um, Also, this is, again, as you say, a period of civil war, uh, how does that come about? And then how is it that uh, Leon Trotsky, uh, I assume a man who, who had no military experience, becomes a, uh, a, a literally a great military commander? Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's an interesting question in and of itself. Uh, how did this guy who had no military experience become such a brilliant uh, general? Um, and I don't know that I have all of the answers to that one. That's, uh, th- that is uh, one of the amazing stories uh, you know, within Trotsky's life of how he had the capacity to play that role. I think his mind was uh, very, very fine, a good analytical mind. He was brilliant. Uh, he had a good organizational sense. Uh, and he was very eloquent. Uh, he was able to motivate large numbers of people uh, in large, uh, you know, uh, contexts uh, involving uh, thousands of people. Uh, and at the same time, he had a certain amount of uh, 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 organizational expertise uh, and uh, a good analytical mind as well. So, um, in any event, uh, what happened after the Russian Revolution? was that uh, the various capitalist governments around the world were horrified and were uh, fearful that uh, there could be a spread of revolutions in their own countries. And there were possibilities of uh, such revolutions spreading into Germany, uh, into other parts of Europe and other parts of the world. So they mobilized to uh, support 
those people in Russia who were uh, against the revolution, uh, old supporters of the czar, uh, various people in the military. There were others who um, opposed the uh, Bolshevik revolution because they wanted to maintain capitalism with some kind of democratic republic. And so they were also in opposition. And then there were large numbers of people, uh, as in any situation, who were unsure of uh, which way to go and what's happening. And so there were a number of people drawn in a, a counter-revolutionary direction, even though there were masses of people, workers and peasants, who were uh, very much in favor of the revolution. But the fact that you had a lot of money and uh, technical support given to the counter-revolutionaries meant that the counter-revolutionaries, they came to be known as the whites, and the revolutionaries were known as the reds. Uh, the, the white armies were able to wreak havoc uh, the more moderate, uh, democratic-minded people in those armies were uh, superseded very quickly by very authoritarian, nasty, vicious uh, uh, elements, pro-Czarist elements. And the, the civil war itself was horrific. It was very, very brutal and brutalizing. Um, and sometimes uh, uh, there was also the threat of foreign invasion. There were 14... Uh, detachments from uh, armies of 14 different countries in Russia giving assistance to the white armies. Uh, so uh, it was an amazing accomplishment that Trotsky, who didn't have prior military experience and built, helped to build up the Red Army from scratch among workers and peasants and ex-soldiers from the Tsarist army that had fallen apart. It is amazing that he was able to coordinate and lead that kind of a victory. He became a, a hero to uh, uh, people throughout the Soviet Union and, and remained so for some years. The, uh, the thing that I uh, find difficult always in, in trying to understand these issues and how these things can happen the way they do because they seem so enormous right? <laughs> such an enormous task and, and so many people and such a broad uh, landscape to cover uh, with, with, I guess, minimal uh, technologies at your, at your fingertips, uh, sparse railway system, et cetera, et cetera, to imagine how, uh, how this gets done is, yeah. is kind of beyond you, you know, a conception. I guess you get your risk board out as a child and try to figure out what this giant land of Russia is and how it's possible for these things to, to get done in this country. Yes, yes, I think that's so. You know, another uh, important piece of the reality is it wasn't just Trotsky himself, and mm -hmm. he knew it was just Trotsky himself. And uh, so there were a number of very heroic and idealistic people, some of whom died uh, in the struggle but who made it possible to, over the expanse of Russia, to uh, fight uh, that struggle, you know, up, up to uh, victory for the Red Army and for the early Soviet Republic. They paid a huge price, though, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the devastation of the economy and uh, a, a certain brutalization. I mean, Trotsky himself, who had been a very uh, democratic figure, uh, you know, arguing that the democratic revolution had got needed to flow into a socialist revolution where the people would control not just the government, but the economy. Very democratic. But in the midst of civil war, 
a war can, is uh, authoritarian and you need centralization and it can be brutal and and Trotsky's uh, uh, policies in that period of time reflected that reality. One of the most interesting things is he does an about face at a certain point, um, you know, when he sees um, the revolution in danger from that kind of authoritarianism and super centralization and, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he swings back as do a number of the, uh, the uh, heroes and heroines uh, in the Civil War period, swings right. back to a defense of the original ideals of the revolution. It's time for our final break. Here's It Can Be Done, another from the Redskins. When we come back, I'll ask Paul LeBlanc, noted Trotskyist, just what is Trotskyism? Stay with us for more of The Revolution Betrayed when Interchange returns on WFHB. Take, 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 First revolution in history Working people first The boss is back against the wall The first and bigger For the better life for all It's a shame Crying shame When our past is buried And our victory's no name It's a crying shame From the Russians that Revolution, Welcome back. This is Interchange on WFHB. Paul LeBlanc is our guest for this third show on the 1917 Russian Revolution. 100 years ago today, November 7th, is October 25th on the Julian calendar that Russia followed pre-revolution. The Bolsheviks took over Petrograd and on the following day stormed the Winter Palace and took power in Russia a triumph in revolutionary history and events that changed the world. But it's what happened next that Paul LeBlanc has deemed the tragedy of communism. It's from within that story that Trotskyism unfolds. Well, it's, uh, this is an important point, I think, for me, and, and one of the things that, that, um, that I, I guess is how we get into those kind of ideological arguments that, that pick and choose uh, the Trotsky, you know, <laughs> pick and choose the particular statements, pick and choose the, the, the mind of the authoritarian versus, you know, the, the democratic mind, all these kinds of things are, are, you're able to sort of pick and choose as you look through the history and look through the actual, uh, writings and activities. So this is an important point I think to make, because it is this point that people tend to make use of to, to create a villain Trotsky. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. I mean, if we're talking about history, we're talking about human beings. Mm -hmm. we're talking about human beings, we are complex creatures, uh, and uh, there are different elements in our makeup, and uh, sometimes we make mistakes, sometimes we do wrong things. So it's not difficult uh, with someone like Trotsky to find uh, you know, the raw materials to construct a villain. Uh, and some people do that because they, in part, because they may oppose uh, the kinds of ideas that uh, Trotsky represents, you know, in general. But uh, I think one must always, regardless of one's political persuasion, 
one must always look at the complexity of humanity and the complexity of the human beings that we're looking at. Um, and uh, it seems to me if you look at Trotsky in that way, objectively, you can find uh, certain things that are ugly and some things that are bad, but certain things that are amazing and, and good and fine. And uh, so it, it seems to me with Trotsky, as with the Russian Revolution, as with everything else, it's important to find a, a, a balanced perspective. Uh, when I say balance, I don't mean uh, something that prevents one from having a definite point of view and moving forward, but still an understanding of the complexity of, of, uh, of the reality. Trotsky was very complex. It seems to me, for, uh, in my perspective, the positive uh, substantially outweighs the negative, mm -hmm. but there, there is negative there, sure. Well, I think the, I guess the point that seems plausible to me or interesting in, in this, you know, Trotsky takes a turn, uh, goes back in, uh, to his original or, or modified stance um, after the war um, is kind of an explanation for, um, you know, seeing the truth of, author of the authoritarian in the war, right? Seeing the truth of what uh, dictatorship is from the military standpoint, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting thing to see a man who does um, sort of wield tremendous power and capability and strength and influence and success um, uh, at, as you say, in many in many ways, as brutally as possible, because you have to uh, get grain, you have to feed the soldiers, you have to do all the things you have to do in order to uh, win and not lose the gains that you made. Um, but then to, at the same time, recognize that that is exactly w the wrong path to continue down. Um, yeah. And yeah. that seems pretty fascinating to me because you could say, well, it's in that sort of military bureaucratization that Stalin steps into. And continues the kind of Red Army path. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and uh, I think that's uh, that's right, and that's insightful. And obviously, things are always more complex than simply, mm -hmm. you know, how we might sum it up like that. But I think <laughs> right. you, you put your finger on uh, uh, an, an important aspect of the dynamic. I'd add to that too. Stalin, people around Stalin, people who remained in the mainstream of the communist movement and who ended up opposing Trotsky and denouncing him, uh, among such people, there continued to be a certain idealism also. It wasn't like they became, uh, well, some of them did become uh, <laughs> very villainous indeed. Mm -hmm. But within that element of the mainstream of the communist movement, there continued to be ideals uh, and uh, certain plausible kinds of explanations and rationalizations. Uh, I think with the benefit of hindsight, seeing what happened, what happened to the Soviet Union under Stalin and after Stalin, uh, that it was something that couldn't endure, that it had certain fatal weaknesses built into it because of how it was functioning. Uh, it's easier for us uh, today to look back and make judgments and then to find insights uh, in, the, in the perspectives of Trotsky that help us understand uh, you know, the collapse of communism and at the same time uh, to uh, build on uh, uh, certain insights that can orient us today as we're still dealing with 
all of the problems of global capitalism. Right. So I, I think he's he's a very important, uh, you know, not just historically, but in terms of uh, relevance to uh, today and tomorrow. Uh, well, Paul, can you tell tell me what it means to be Trotskyist? <laughs> well, it depends. Right. Uh, uh, from uh, the standpoint of uh, opponents of Trotskyism, uh, it means to be stupid or wicked or foolish or ridiculous. Um, and then among those who consider themselves Trotskyists, uh, sadly, the, there are wars that are fought between one self-proclaimed Trotskyist and another over various issues. Um, if one transcends that kind of uh, uh, limitation and, and silliness, it seems to me that to be a Trotskyist, uh, and uh, Trotskyists have much in common with people who aren't Trotskyists. So one thing is you're committed to socialism. Uh, another thing is that you're committed to the cause of the working class majority, the laboring majority, that you're opposed to all forms of oppression, that you're influenced by and animated by the ideas uh, and perspectives of Marx and Marxism. Um, I think that in addition to that and as part of that, uh, Trotskyists uh, remain revolutionary. They don't believe that uh, the problems can be uh, solved simply through piling up various reforms, that there will be a need for revolution. Uh, they believe that uh, democracy is essential in the revolutionary struggle, in the revolutionary organization, and in the society that comes after the revolution, in the socialism uh, that we're fighting for democracy is essential. And then that relates to Trotsky's theory of permanent revolution. That is a commitment to uh, democracy, uh, to thoroughgoing democracy, genuine democracy. And he believes that uh, only the working class majority has a commitment to that kind of democracy and that the logic of that uh, unyielding struggle for working class democracy just naturally flows into uh, socialism, the struggle for socialism. Mm. But that this can't happen in a single country. We live in a global economy. If it's a global capitalist economy and you're trying to build socialism in just one little piece of the world, you will be overwhelmed. This has to spread throughout the world. And it can because there is oppression all over the world and there are laboring majorities fighting against privileged minorities and so forth and so on. So uh, an injury to one is an injury to all and we're all in this together. These are ideas that are not just Trotsky's. These are ideas that are part of the labor movement, the working class movement, the socialist movement. But Trotskyism, uh, I think, brings it together in a certain dynamic way that uh, uh, is uh, sometimes distinctive. Hmm. Well, lastly, is it possible for people in in the U.S. to see the Russian Revolution outside of how it's been used or demonized? Or uh, I was thinking the other day, it never struck me to to think of it as a sort of a formative revolution that leads to another kind of country, right? In the sense that you know we imagine the American Revolution. Uh, it's a it's a history that's long passed for it, but we've mythologized it in such a way that um, you know can we see Lenin and Trotsky as founding fathers of a new country? Can we look at them as a George Washington or, or a Thomas Jefferson without without being you know plantation class slave owners, of course? Mm -hmm. um, 
like its nearness to us seems to me and its sort of implication in in capitalism's own I, I guess difficult space after the depression after the war you know it's it's seeming necessity as a narrative um, foil for capitalism it, it seems to me it's still a a thing in which we could set it to the side of our own understanding of what it means to have a revolution mm-hmm. you know and and come to a new country to also fight against a monarch an empire you know an emperor to to fight against an old feudal order um, and but yet we'd never do this, right? Yeah, it it seems to me that that's uh, important, and there are some people who who have done it, who do it. Hmm. Uh, that is uh, looking at the Russian Revolution or or the American Revolution or the French Revolution within a larger context of uh, uh, you know comparing them, uh, comparing the various revolutions with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that gives one uh, tremendous insights. Uh, and that's something that I've attempted to do in some of my work also, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, see the Russian Revolution and the Cuban and the Nicaraguan and the American and the French and the Chinese and the Indian and so forth mm-hmm. within a certain kind of context. And in each case, uh, although there are big differences, there are certain similarities. And this notion that uh, that you put forward that I think is very interesting of creating a new world um, a new kind of country. I think that all of the rev- each of the revolutions, in one way or another, uh, have involved that. We can find the good, the bad, and the ugly in all of the revolutions, uh, and there's much for us to learn from. That's our show. You've been listening to Leon Trotsky or The Revolution Betrayed. We'll close with the Redskins. Let's make it work. Thanks to Paul LeBlanc, historian and author of a new book from Haymarket Books, October Song, Bolshevik Triumph, Communist Tragedy, 1917 to 1924, as well as many others on the political history and theory of socialism. Next time on Interchange, Matilda Rabinowitz and the Wobblies, Immigrant Girl, Radical Woman. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon, and Wes Martin is our executive producer. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFH. Oh, it moves and I-